Welcome to Dear Prudence. I'm your Prudence, Janae Desmond-Harris. Today, we'll be talking about how roommates should handle mismatched levels of COVID caution, how to split a check when your friends seem to forget they had appetizers, and how to settle a debate about going braless around teenage sons. Here to help me out is my guest, Brian Lehrer. He's the host of The Brian Lehrer Show, WNYC Radio's daily call-in program, where he and his guests take on the issues dominating conversations in New York and around the world. Brian, thank you so much for being here. It is so cool to be on your show, Janae, after you were on my show, and I feel completely unqualified to give people advice. So uh, we'll put that out there as a caveat. Let's not talk about qualifications because then we have to look at mine and it's just going to get uncomfortable. So anyway, before we get started, what's your one piece of unqualified and unsolicited advice that you'd just love to share with our listeners? All right. Well, since my show so often deals with politics, my unsolicited advice has to do with difficult relationships with friends or relatives over political differences. Mm. And we've all been there, right? On one side or the other. I just can't talk to that person anymore ever since Trump, Mm -hmm. ever since Bush versus Gore, ever since the 60s, (laughs) but never more intensely than in the Trump era right now, for sure. And my advice is spend 20% more time listening and 20% less time talking. Mm. Uh, come, Come to Thanksgiving or whatever it is with at least two curious questions Mm -hmm. that you want to ask that person. And by curious questions, I mean ones that express curiosity about how they came to their views, even if you think they are totally batshit crazy. Mm -hmm. You know, like, how did you come to feel that way? You know, I disagree on this, but tell me about you in this regard. Why is this important to you? Do you think this issue affects your life directly? Or is it more of a philosophical thing about the country? And this might be frustrating because you really want to scream at how wrong and damaging it all is. But I think with this approach, you stand a chance of accomplishing two things. You might keep the relationship, if you care about it, from disintegrating. And you might also maximize the chances of changing their views over time because they have some degree of trust in you for listening and it might unpolarize their thinking to some degree. So that's my unsolicited advice for what it's worth. Well, the holidays are coming up, so I'm sure you'll be, um, you'll have plenty of occasions to share that. And actually, um, I get so many interesting insights from my guests on this show. And sometimes I've sort of written down my notes about how I would respond to a dilemma. And then the guest shares how they would. And I say, oh, that's actually a really good point. And one thing I've learned from my guests is that Sometimes when you're in a difficult situation, being curious and asking questions can really be a good way forward. So I think that's great advice um, just in day-to-day life outside of politics. If you really feel like someone is hard to understand or you just you just can't you can't relate to what they're thinking, ask more. Listen more. Yeah. 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 Just don't look for short-term satisfaction out of that mm. necessarily. Okay. Brian and I will dive into your questions after a short break. Can't get enough Dear Prudence? Then you should definitely join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. You'll get to hear me answer an extra question every week just for members. With your subscription, you get ad-free listening across the Slate network and unlimited reading on the Slate site, including all Dear Prudence columns, past and present. Go to slate.com forward slash Prudy Plus to sign up. 
It's just $15 for your first three months. Again, that's slate.com forward slash Prudy Plus. Welcome back. You're listening to Dear Prudence, and I'm here with Brian Lehrer. Let's get started with our first letter. It's titled Feeling Crabby. On a vacation with friends, I offered to put my credit card down for the eight-person table for dinner at a seafood restaurant. It ended up being $550. I can't remember what everyone got for entrees, but we ordered $50 of appetizers. As people are paying me back, I'm realizing that some of them aren't counting the appetizer split, tax, or tip. One person sent me $20 less than what it should have been. I'm fine being the one to put it on my credit card, but the appetizer, tax, and tip, around $100, falls onto me. What do I do in this scenario? I don't want to look like I'm penny pinching. Is it better to split evenly in big groups? So um, I'll take the second part of the question first, and we can talk about that before we get to what to do when you realize you're short $100. This is sort of one of those frequent internet debates. I don't know if you've seen it. People like to fight on Twitter, sometimes TikTok, about whether the bill should be split evenly when you go out or whether everyone should pay for what they had. And a lot of people will say, you know, if you can't afford to just split the bill evenly between everyone, don't go. And I don't agree with that. I think everyone deserves to take part in these experiences with friends and family. Everyone gets to participate. And if you're working with a limited budget, you really can't afford to pay for two times the cost of your meal as the toll for being in a social situation. I'm especially sympathetic to people who don't drink and end up paying for other people's alcohol. That can just put a check through the roof. I also think that bill splitting culture is something that differs with age and geography and culture. Generally speaking, I think if you're younger, maybe more recently out of college or a young professional, everyone is really going to want to spend you know, the $18 they owe and no more. Whereas if you're more established in your career and have a little more life under your belt, you might be able to afford just, you know, sucking it up and covering someone else's crab appetizer and glass of wine. I don't think bill splitting evenly is the solution to this because I don't know like what situation all these people are in. Right. And I definitely agree with you on that. If you say up front, we're going to split the bill evenly, maybe that would make um, some people over order or under order from what they want and are willing or able to pay for. I think in my experience, bill splitting works after the meal if it feels like to everybody that you've ordered roughly the same amount of money's worth of food and drink, and then, then you can bring it up, oh, let's just split this, uh, you know, rather than figure it all out to the penny and it's going to be 3 or $4 more for one person. I think that's when bill splitting works. Right. I find it stressful, or at least I used to find it stressful, like in my younger and more social years, to go to these group birthday dinners. And it's sort of over your head the whole time oh my God, that person just ordered their third cocktail. Okay, well, this person ordered appetizers. Is that for all of us? Are we all going to end up splitting this? I used to hate the feeling of just not knowing how it was going to turn out at the end of the night. I just want to acknowledge that like these group dinner situations just can be tough, especially if they're with people who go beyond like your very close friends or family members. But to the writer's actual question... When you're sitting there looking at your credit card statement and realizing that you have single-handedly covered the appetizer and maybe the tax and some of the tip, 
what do you do? What do you say to these other people who haven't paid what they owe? And maybe they think they do or they did, or maybe they're just glad they got away with it. Can I say, first of all, what's wrong with those people she was dining with? There is no excuse for not adding up all the details of your portion of the bill, especially basic things in this case, like appetizer, tax, and tip. I don't know if they're 15 years old and never went out with a big group before, or they had too much to drink as part of those $550. I'll assume they weren't stiffing her on purpose, but it seems like several people were Restaurant 101 clueless. Definitely. Everyone knows that if you go to a restaurant, even aside from the obvious tax and tip, I feel that there's just a mysterious extra charge that happens in groups. Like whatever you think you should owe, you should always pay more than that because it's just like the restaurant math. Like it's sort of like how you just lose socks in the dryer and you don't know where they went. Like you don't know where these fees came from. But if you're with more than three people, it's just going to be like about 50% more expensive than you thought it should be. I love that. I've never thought about it that way, but I've definitely been there. Restaurant math magic. Yeah. Those expenses that come out of the air. But but that also makes this, for me, the easiest of the questions on your list for today, Janae. I see they're going to get more complicated and stranger as we go. Mm-hmm. But this first one is straightforward, and it's really two different questions. The one you took on first about should they split the bill evenly and say that to themselves as the meal begins. But the other one, what to do about this restaurant bill, which she still would like to be reimbursed for fairly if she can. Um, And my advice on this first one is simple. I think you can nicely and respectfully without looking like a penny pincher, explain the situation, show your work on the math and say you wound up out about a hundred. You can put it like, I think you overlooked rather than accuse them of trying to get away with something. Just say it nicely, you know, and Venmo me if you can. Or if you don't agree with my math, of course, let me know. I like the line, if you don't agree with my math, let me know. That's very friendly. I have to push back and say, you are going to end up looking like a penny pincher because it's not $100 from one person. It's like, you owe me $6, you probably owe me $19. And so mm-hmm. each individual person might feel that point. the letter writer is penny pinching with respect right. to them. But maybe this can be done on a group text message. So just, hey, everyone, hate to be this way, but I did notice that I spent like about $100 extra. Um, Can everyone double check and make sure you remember to include tax and tip? I think if the people were not actually trying to get over, they're probably going to send you like $25 just to be like, oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. Let me cover it. You know, and maybe you might even get yourself a little tip out of this. And then you're going to be plus $100, yeah. and then that's going to make them feel uncomfortable too. I think the person who handles the bills should get a tip themselves because that's such a headache. Like <laughs> you're at the end of a meal, you have to be the one to look at the amount and like collect the Venmos. Um, that's a job that I never want. I don't like math. I don't want to deal with it, especially if I've had a glass of wine or something. So I give the letter writer a lot of credit for like being the one to handle it. But I would say going forward... Don't do this again. Right. And that's my other thought, too. It goes down as a lesson learned. Mm -hmm. And depending on the person's financial state, it can be a relatively little damage done situation. I don't know what $100 is to this person. I don't want to judge that. But I think the lesson learned for the future, since we agree on not evenly uh, splitting the bill and going in on that basis, is to make sure if you're the one 
who takes the chat to just state a general gentle reminder to the group to remember to include tax and tip. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy now that we have um, these computers in our pockets, you know, everyone can use a calculator and you don't have to rely on the amount of cash you have in your pocket. So you don't have to round down. You can actually Venmo or cash app the exact amount that you owe. I would say to the letter writer going forward, put your credit card down only if you're with like your two best friends who you know are going to pay what they owe or if you're in a situation where it doesn't matter because so much money has changed hands and will continue to change hands over the years. Going out to dinner is supposed to be relaxing. It's supposed to leave you feeling good. You don't want to leave feeling like you were taken advantage of um, or you have to dread an awkward text message or awkward conversation, even if your friends put you in that situation unintentionally. Or if you're with a larger group, not just close friends, um, there's nothing wrong, I think, with sitting there at the end if you're taking the check and putting it on your card to actually do the math and just kind of look at it and check the work right there and ask some people right at the moment, like, is this right if you think it's wrong? And it's a little uncomfortable, but you can't avoid all awkwardness uh, if you want to just be straightforward with people. Totally. So our next question is titled COVID Conundrum. My pronouns are she, her. I am a 29-year-old teacher and have a summer case of COVID right now. Anecdotally, it seems to be going around in my social circle the last couple weeks, so I tested when I got a sore throat. I live with two roommates in Brooklyn. When I got my positive rapid, I reflexively offered to wear a KN95 around the common spaces in my home. The CDC advises that I isolate for five days and continue to mask for another five or get two negative tests and take the mask off earlier. One of my roommates, let's call her Hannah, has historically been more COVID cautious than I, so to avoid conflict, I offered to follow the official guidance. My case of COVID involved a low-grade fever, body aches, and a sore throat. Not great, not terrible. By day three, I went for a long walk around the park, and by day four, I went for a bike ride and was feeling okay, if more tired than usual. Most new COVID cases at this point are no more severe than a cold. There are no more free rapid tests available from the city. There's practically no data available about new cases in the city. I had trouble finding a comfortable KN95 at any of my local bodegas and grocery stores. I haven't had to test before a social gathering in many months. There are seemingly no new articles in the past year from major news sources about how to deal with COVID when it enters your home. The prevailing impression from society is clear. COVID is endemic. Let's move on. By day three of masking in my own home during the heat wave, even when others weren't around, as has been our custom in these situations, I was starting to feel claustrophobic and frustrated. My KN95 was too tight and I wasn't able to find a better one in a store. For the sake of comfort, I threw on a surgical mask while in the kitchen and Hannah walked in. I knew immediately that she'd have a reaction and after I retreated to my bedroom, she texted me asking me to put on a KN95 in the common areas. I pushed back that I had been alone in the kitchen until she arrived and I offered to wear a KN95 when we were in the same room. She sent back a link to an article from 2021 about how aerosol particles can remain in the air for up to three hours. Our apartment has many windows and cross ventilation, but Hannah is still worried that I will leave COVID particles suspended in the air if I don't mask for 10 days in the common areas, even while I'm alone. Sudden rage surged through me. 
why should I be expected to mask diligently for COVID if I don't do the same for a cold? Neither of my housemates is immunocompromised. I'm aware that long COVID is still a risk, but our collective behavior is inconsistent and the guidance vague. If someone like Hannah is taking the subway, going to restaurants and parties and jobs and not masking, she's not demonstrating COVID caution on the day-to-day. Yet, when she's aware that I have the virus, she's acting as if it's 2021. Is this logical? Is it right? She and I sat down and hashed it out. It turns out she has some friends coming into town who are super COVID cautious. And in order to see them, she has to be able to report that I've been following protocols. She also doesn't want to miss any days of work as she's been working under the table and doesn't get PTO. These are real concerns and I can understand what's at stake for her. But is it my responsibility to meet her level of caution? My social circle has a different attitude toward COVID, and I have weathered several cases now as a teacher who taught in person throughout the pandemic. Our interpersonal friction is caused by conflicting attitudes in our society at large, and we have few tools to navigate it. What should we be expecting from one another nowadays when COVID enters the home? Do we go with the CDC's advice and old research that suggests that COVID can hover in the air for hours, even when the city's COVID infrastructure has practically evaporated and the general population acts as if they don't care? Why do some continue to act as if it's 2021 when someone they know does test positive, despite evidence that in 2023, new COVID cases pose a low risk? Why has the media gone silent on these kinds of questions and where can we turn for facts? Should I just shut up and wear the damn mask for the sake of household peace and stop bellyaching? Well, I feel like all of our country's years of debates and anxiety like found their way into this letter. I can feel it. I thought we could both start off by just being transparent about our own personal approaches to COVID because I think they'll color our responses. When it comes to me, I haven't had COVID yet. And I think it's because I'm probably in about the 90th percentile when it comes to being COVID cautious. There's a reason for this. So When it first began, I was in the middle of IVF and I just couldn't risk getting it and having some procedure delayed and throwing off the whole timeline. Then I was pregnant. I was obviously extra cautious. Then my mom had a couple of surgeries and I didn't want to mess up her scheduling for that or not be able to care for her. Then I had a young baby who wasn't fully vaccinated. um, And who knows, maybe I had a, a dab of postpartum anxiety. I really didn't want him to get sick. And now I've just gotten so used to never being sick, not even a cold, that I don't want to go back to the days of, oh, I I rode an airplane and, you know, now I'm down with the flu or I just get a few colds every season. And I personally don't think it's hard to wear a mask, but I realize I'm in the minority here. I flew to Atlanta recently with a couple of masks in my bag and being disorganized as I am, I managed to lose them on the plane. And I went to go buy one in an airport shop when I landed and there were no masks to be purchased. So anyway, I just wanted to share like where I come from when I read this question. What about you, Brian? You know, I'm actually probably in the same percentile as you. I've been extremely COVID cautious. I have two 95-year-old parents who I'm involved with on the regular. And I have other reasons that I don't want to test it on myself uh, if I don't have to. And I haven't had COVID either. Um, but certainly I am going out and doing things again, uh, for the letter writer, I think I'm going to be your COVID absolutist here if you're not. Okay. And say 
if you actually have COVID and live with other humans, you follow the CDC guidelines unless you ha- your housemates don't care. Right. And I think the letter writer is twisting herself into pretzels with all that COVID history right. to rationalize not following the current guidelines because her mask is annoying. Um, the comfort level of the most cautious person in the house, in my opinion, should carry the day, especially when it is within the CDC guidelines, not beyond them. And just because your case of COVID is mild, and I know you acknowledge that not everybody's is, but it doesn't mean hers will be. I know some pretty young people whose lives have been transformed by long COVID, for example. I think the letter writer is getting so tied up in like the public health messaging and the long history of debates around COVID and the media messaging and even the guidance and failing to just look at this on sort of a rational and personal level. So I think that if COVID had not been politicized, it wouldn't be so hard to say, you know, I have this illness. My roommate has reasons for really, really not wanting to get it. Let me go ahead and grant the request to take measures to keep them from getting it. It doesn't seem that complicated. Like, so I hate most lavender scented products, right? I just think they smell disgusting. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know why real lavender is good, but artificial makes me queasy. And I think if I were this letter writer's roommate and I said, could you like not burn your lavender candle in the kitchen? She would say, oh, sure, of course, because that's how you treat people you live with. You try to make people comfortable. If you're sharing space with someone, you kind of take their preferences into consideration. It's part of sharing a home. And I think what it boils down to is really just like being a decent housemate to this other human who doesn't want to get sick. And it's a very temporary inconvenience. This is probably moot by now since the problem would have expired 10 days at most after she wrote the letter. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's an indication of how short the inconvenient masking would have been. I mean, this isn't about being overcautious in avoiding the virus, like never going on the subway again or something. You actually have the virus and are living with her. That's such a good point. And I'll throw one little correction or difference of opinion about the science in here, which is that aerosols are still considered to be a potential thing depending on the circumstances. It sounds like because your kitchen is well ventilated, it's probably not much of a risk long after you leave the room, but it's not like they used to think aerosols can stay in a room and now they don't think that's possible. It really depends on the room and the number of people who've been in the room, who've been infected, and how long the exposure is of the person who enters the room after that. So I'm just saying aerosols are not an all or nothing situation, although it sounds like they would be not much of a threat in this case. Right. And I mean, she's saying things like, oh, it was 2021. Well, your roommate's body doesn't know if it's 2021 or 2023. Her friend's bodies don't. Um, Just because, yes, I admit society has moved on a lot. That doesn't necessarily mean like aside from the difference vaccines might make that someone's body is going to respond differently or that it would be less unpleasant to be sick. Right. There was a news story last year about how the CDC decided that aerosols weren't much of a risk anymore. And the White House actually released a statement that said basically, yes, they are. Hmm. 
which is just to say there's some scientific uncertainty in that area. Right. And also, like, we actually don't need to be going into the literature about this. Another example, if your roommate says, could you please wipe down the sink after you use the bathroom, you're not going to be digging around to figure out if water on the sink is actually a risk or, you know, how many people have slipped on a wet floor and what does the data say? It's just like, this is a preference. Could you take my request to be comfortable into consideration? And in general... I think, letter writer, if you go into situations doing only what's your like formal and scientifically backed responsibility, you're going to be at odd with the world and people a lot. And I think a better question here than like, what is my responsibility is, what can I do that's not too hard, that is kind and thoughtful and appropriate for a shared living space? I do have some advice, though for the friends coming to town who are even more COVID cautious than the roommate, I think if they can afford it financially, just get an Airbnb or Mm -hmm. a hotel room. You know, I don't think for me as a visitor, no matter how careful my hosts promise to be, if one of them actually has COVID with positive tests Mm -hmm. right now, I am not sleeping there. Right. I'm just not, again, unless it's a financial imperative. And I'd offer one piece of unsolicited advice here. When your current lease ends, consider conscious uncoupling from your roommate because COVID is endemic, meaning it's permanently with us, even though it's generally milder than it used to be. Consider making COVID compatibility one of the criteria for who you live with next. I'm so glad you said that. I mean, this is now on the list of things like, do you stay up late at night playing music? How do you feel about cleanliness? Do you have pets? Um, It should absolutely be taken into consideration when it comes to whether you'll be compatible with someone. Because reasonable people can disagree. You're listening to The Dear Prudence Show. And when we come back, we'll be reading more of your letters. Stay with us. Welcome back to Dear Prudence. I'm here with my guest, Brian, to answer your letters. And the next one is titled, Wife Going Brawless Around Teenage Sons. We have two teenage boys. My wife is 50 years old, very voluptuous, no sagging breasts. I'm older, and I've told her that she should have a bra on walking around the home and interacting with the boys as much as she does. And I also told her I didn't like it, especially when I come home and I can see her hardened nipples and printing through her dress, but she refuses to put a bra on in the home because she doesn't think there's anything wrong with not wearing a bra around the boys. I've also asked her not to leave her underwear out where we can't help but see them. Is it inappropriate to say this to my wife? What's a better way to resolve this issue? It's an ongoing one, and she doesn't think we should talk to a therapist about the issue. So I think this is another issue about which reasonable people can disagree. I can just imagine if I crowdsourced an answer to this question, um, I'd get everything from this is disgusting behavior, this is sexual abuse, to Americans are so weird about bodies, bodies aren't sexual, underwear is just a piece of clothing, stop being a ridiculous prude and go seek therapy. What surprises me is that the two of them are in the same household, the same culture, the same age range, the same family married to each other, and see this so differently. When I first saw this letter, Janae, I actually wondered if it was a hoax, like something really meant for the advice pages of The Onion Mm -hmm. or something like that, (laughs) somebody pranking us just to see what we would say. I mean, the language the writer uses to describe their wife 
for someone who's complaining about her being too suggestive in what she displays, it's curiously provocative, mm-hmm. don't you think? Using the word voluptuous, which implies sexual pleasure rather than just a certain shape, that was weird to me. And pointing out that her breasts don't sag, like right. if her breasts did sag, but maybe they were large, that would change the effect of not wearing a bra in the house all that much and referring to her hardened nipples. Oh my really? God, this is some kind of a porn fantasy letter, isn't it? I never pick up on it until someone else points it out. <laughs> real. I mean, I'm sure it's not. I'm sure it's earnest. But the whole thing reminded me of this old joke about a guy who's in psychoanalysis. And the psychiatrist is showing him Rorschach test images. And the guy keeps seeing women's private parts and everything. And the doctor says, I think you're obsessed with sex. And the patient replies, me? You're the one showing me the dirty pictures. <laughs> He sees it all very sexually, and that's why it seems inappropriate to him for the kids to see it. Yeah, but having said all that, I agree with you that if we crowdsourced this, we would get responses all over the map, and I don't think hardly anybody who responded would be against modesty. So maybe there's a way for the mom to feel physically comfortable and the spouse to be emotionally comfortable that could be a compromise Like maybe if she wears no bra, but wears baggy t-shirts that are black or Mm -hmm. some other color that doesn't show anything or maybe something like that. But I don't know, you know, I, as a feminist, I like to think of myself, man, I'm very reluctant to say to any woman, you have to wear a bra in your own home. Right. I mean, I think that's like a value of mine as well. And another value is not wanting underage kids to be uncomfortable. So one thing that occurred to me right. is, can we ask the boys? Is there any indication that that they're feeling weird or, or like this is inappropriate or uncomfortable in their own home? And if they really don't care, I think that really makes a case for just letting this woman live in her t-shirts around the house. Um, if they're saying, you know, I feel so weird when I see mom like this and um, I'm just, you know, can't relax at home and it just makes me feel squirmy, then maybe that maybe that would incentivize her even to, um, you know, they, there's great bra technology these days. They make really, really comfortable ones. So maybe she would want to look into that. And maybe the mom is being too loosey-goosey. I don't really know. But I think you keyed on something important that I was going to bring up too, which is that there's no reference to the teenage boy's reactions mm-hmm. to any of this in the letter. Does the writer perceive that they're looking at their mother sexually that would obviously be a potential disturbing factor con- to consider. Mm-hmm. Um, and if she's egging that on in any way, even inadvertently, you know, that matters. But the writer gave us no indication either way. So right. I have to leave that as as a glaring unknown and assume that if they're teenage boys, they're probably seeing much worse on the internet. Oh my God, such a good point. And when it comes to specifically leaving underwear around, I assume this isn't like she's taking it off at the dinner table and throwing it on the kitchen counter. This is laundry. Get over it. It's an article of clothing. If anyone doesn't want to see it, they can take a towel and put it right over the top. Problem solved. This is Dear Prudence. We need to take a break, but when we come back, more letters from you and advice from us. Stay tuned.
Janae, and you're listening to Dear Prudence. Brian and I are about to tackle our last question for the day. Ready, Brian? Ready as I'm going to be. Okay, let's go. This letter is titled, Lukewarm Lover. My problem is a painful but common one. I'm afraid to break someone's heart. I've been dating a woman for the past year on and off while trying to make things work. Specifically, I've been trying to see the overwhelming good in someone who is perfect on paper, but not in practice. The person I'm with is kind, caring, smart, dedicated, thoughtful, and idiosyncratic in all the right ways. That, and they're exceptionally supportive of me. I'm a writer and a musician, and in my previous relationship, I was made to feel inferior for those aspirations. Not so in this relationship. In this relationship, my partner asks me to read my work out loud to her every time I finish a chapter. In this relationship, my partner wants to hear the songs I've written the moment they're finished. In this relationship, I feel creatively seen, but I don't feel in love. It's one of those little tragedies. When I look at the person I'm with, I feel like I'm staring at them through glass. I can get close to the glass, I can kiss the glass, I can put my hand up to the glass in the little places they've left fingerprints. And in that way, we're close. But I can't actually touch them, and they can't touch me. They think they can, but there's a part of me that refuses to let go, to open the door next to the glass and stand inside it with them. Every time I get close to that door, A little voice in my head says, you need to leave. It's time to go. We have a lot planned. A trip. Her birthday. Tickets to events. Things like that. That, and she just lost her job. She needs support through it, and I'm her lifeline. What should I do? Look for the good in things and stick it out for a while? Or cut her loose and go? So, I think one of the toughest things that comes up a lot in letters is that you just can't make someone love you and you can't make yourself love another person. So many people have been there, right, Mm -hmm. Janae? I've been on both sides of it. When I was single, compatibility in so many ways, but one person is totally into the relationship and the other is not. I mean, there's always one person, well, they say there's always one person who's a little bit more into it, but it can't be one person has one foot out the door and isn't feeling anything. And one yeah. person is just trying and trying to connect and being infatuated with their partner. Right. And I wish I had more information about what isn't working for the letter writer in this relationship. I think frequently it would be about sex, right? We are such a great couple, but I'm just not attracted to you enough. But the writer doesn't say that. And the implication with the whole glass wall metaphor is that it's about something else. At least that's the way I read it. Something in the girlfriend's personality that isn't sparking enough joy or emotional passion for this person. So for someone who says they're a writer, I could have used less glass metaphor and more solid information about what about the girlfriend is the problem. Yeah, at the same time, I did think the writing powerfully conveyed the lack of connection and the writer's really, really strong instincts that this is not the person for him. I also had to scroll back up to the top and say, okay, how hard is the situation going to be to get out of? And in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, it's a five-year marriage. Dating for one year. I always say again and again, dating is for getting to know people and deciding whether you want something long-term. 
inside of a year, and it's only it's been on and off for a year, you're still in like the data gathering phase of things. It's okay for the answer to be, you're a great person, but I don't feel that special thing that makes me want to move forward. Yeah. I mean, the advice the person is asking for isn't crystal clear to me either. Is it whether to give it another big try in general or just to stick it out for a while because they have tickets and travel and events coming up? Or is it primarily because the girlfriend just lost her job and you're her lifeline? Those are very different questions in a way. Right. Um, timing is always hard. Whenever someone wants to break up, it's like, it's their birthday, it's Thanksgiving, it's going to be Valentine's Day. You know, they had a death in the family. Uh, it's always hard to find the exact moment. I would say, um, I like to give concrete advice. Once you've had this feeling, you need to break up within a month. I don't know what the finances look like. If this woman is totally dependent on you, maybe there's a way to help her get on her feet. But I don't think the best thing for either of you is to stay together in a relationship where your feelings just aren't there. And it's not what she wants either. I think one thing that helps someone like this make the right decision is to make it feel less selfish. And think about how this woman deserves someone who feels about her the way she feels about them. Although I was tending to come down on the other side, though I definitely take your point, the other side of the explicit advice question that the person was asking, I think in a way the easy thing to say is you shouldn't fake it, you can't fake feelings, that kind of thing, which is true, but you are in a fairly long-term relationship, a year, with someone you care about. And the day-to-day seems okay, more or less. So if you can stick it out for a while, maybe don't break up with her right after she lost her job as the compassionate thing to do. It would be almost mean, I feel, in a way, to break up right now. I would tend to say, give it a while. You said within a month, maybe that's fair. Um, And then see how you feel. Also, sometimes a crisis like that can change the way people feel. It might be that it brings you closer. It might also not. But maybe ride this phase for a while out of caring and also what's in it for you if you can shatter that glass to what might otherwise be a beautiful relationship. Otherwise, your suggestion of a month sounds good to me. Okay. Jumping over a little bit to your side of the fence, it did occur to me to ask the letter writer to consider, is this a pattern for you? Have you ever felt really, really connected to someone? Because it could be that you just have a wall up and that it's something that you would benefit from working through to enjoy a relationship with this woman who sounds amazing and sounds like a great partner and sounds like she really cares about you. So that requires a lot of introspection. You know, is it is it you or is it me? Also, do you remember, I think it was in the New York Times, like five or 10 years ago, there was a piece called 100 Questions That Lead to Love. So I wonder if there's a place for, um, it doesn't have to be therapy, but some kind of intentional work to get closer emotionally and to feel more connected. And I think it would even be fair for the letter writer to say, and this is what would help me feel like he's not leading this woman on. I love what we have. I'm not feeling quite as connected as I would like to. And I'd like to work on some ways for us to just get to know each other better and just feel closer and feel more passionate about each other. So that could be any number of things, including that list of questions where you really get to know someone and how their mind works and what their values are. And who knows, it could light a spark. And bringing up that hundred questions makes me think we don't know from the letter if they've talked about this and what the girlfriend thinks the problem for the writer is. And if they've worked on these issues as a couple in any way, we don't know that. 
Right. So definitely, if you want to like kill time because of the planned trips and her financial situation, use the time to really give it your all when it comes to trying to get closer and be open with her, not as open as you've been with us in this letter, but open about the idea that you'd like to work on creating more of a spark and more intimacy. Those are all the questions we have for this week. It's been fun and hopefully helpful. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Janae. Such a pleasure to be with you. Tune into The Brian Lehrer Show, WNYC Radio's daily call-in program, covering politics and life locally and globally. The show airs weekdays from 10 a.m. to noon on WNYC 93.9 FM, AM 820, and WNYC.org. Do you need help getting along with partners, relatives, coworkers, and people in general? Write to me. Go to slate.com forward slash prudy. Slate.com forward slash P-R-U-D-I-E. The Dear Prudence column publishes every Thursday. If you'd like to hear your question answered on the podcast, we are looking for letter writers who would be comfortable recording their questions for the show. You can stay anonymous. Dear Prudence is produced by Sierra Spragley-Ricks with a special thanks to Maura Curry. Editorial help from Paola de Verona. Daisy Rosario is Senior Supervising Producer, and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's VP of Audio. I'm your dear Prudence, Janae Desmond-Harris. Until next time.